ask you if you would to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 31 and when you passage of Scripture for us. Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, When you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't listen. He will not let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the the signs before the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. And let me just say what a joy it is to be with you this morning. I, uh, I'm grateful for the two weeks of vacation that you allowed me to have along with the family. It was a sweet time of rest and, uh, and refreshment, but it is such a blessing to come back and to be with you. And what a joy it is to open God's word with you this morning to look at this passage. So I thought about the passage this morning. I was remembering what it was like to come home to America after living in Turkey for two years. Uh, We loved living in Turkey. We enjoyed everything about the culture. We enjoyed our friends. We enjoyed the food. Uh, Just so many things about living in Istanbul that were really amazing in terms of history. But I remember as the time to return back to America was drawing close, I was really excited about coming home. Probably most especially, I was looking forward to beginning seminary. It had been a goal for a long time to go to seminary and prepare for ministry, but I was also looking forward to other things that I'd been missing for two years. Uh, Things like (laughs) Chick-fil-A and bacon and college football, even in the hard times. And I was going to miss my friends in Turkey, but I was really excited about being back home. But when you look at this passage in Exodus 4, you see that it was different for Moses as he contemplated going back home to Egypt. Uh, You see, he hadn't only been gone from Egypt for two years, he'd been gone for 40 years. And, And while it was exciting for me to think about returning home and all the things I would experience, it was quite unnerving for him as he thought about the task that was before him. For one thing, He had the daunting task of confronting the most powerful king of his time. That was probably scary. 
But beyond that, Moses didn't even know what he would find when he returned to Egypt. He didn't know if his family was alive. He didn't know the state of the people of Israel. What he did know is that he was still a wanted man, that there was the death sentence over his head. And so for him to return to Egypt would have been filled with danger, would have been filled with uncertainty as he thought about all of this. But as we'll see in our passage for study this morning, Moses would not be returning to Egypt alone. The Lord would go with him. The Lord would be all that he needed. Uh, The Lord would encourage him. The Lord would confront him. But the Lord would also care for him as he went back to his homeland. So we're looking at this passage this morning in Exodus. It's a a passage that's showing us Moses' trip home to Egypt. Now, last time we were looking at the encounter between Moses and God at the the burning bush. That's chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 17. And as we look at those verses, well, we said that this was really something of a a conversion experience for Moses as he came to know personally, in a personal way, the covenant God of Israel who identified himself as the I Am, using his covenant name. But it was also, beyond a, a conversion experience, it was also really a commissioning service. Because God had work for Moses to do. Uh, Moses was going to be a prophet. Actually, Moses was going to be a a great prophet who was going to bring God's word to God's people and beyond God's people to Pharaoh, who is this high and exalted official. He had a good work to do. But I imagine coming away from Mount Sinai, Moses must must have felt like, you know, maybe he was in some kind of a dream. You know, but it wasn't a dream. He had really come in contact with, he'd really encountered the living God. Now, our passage this morning, verses 18 to 31, it it tells us what took place after that encounter with God. Again, this is Moses going home, going back to Egypt. So it records his journey from Midian, where he'd lived for 40 years, now returning to his homeland in Egypt. One commentator put it this way. He said, Moses was going back to the land of the pyramids, back to the slave camps of Pharaoh, and back to the people of God. But as we'll see as we study this passage this morning, it would be a a dangerous journey. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at this passage using three points, which are really three more glorious truths about our God. So if you're taking notes, three truths from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. The first truth we'll see this morning is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We'll see that when we look at verses 18 to 23. Second, we're going to see that God disciplines his people. God disciplines his people. We'll see that when we look at verses 24 to 26. And third, we're going to see that God cares for his people. God cares for his people. And we'll see that in verses 27 to 31. Let's look at that first truth together then. God is sovereign. Please take your copy of God's word. Look at it with me. You'll be helped as you look at God's word this morning. We're going to look first at verses 18 to 20 as we work our way through this important passage. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. In verse 18, we see that Moses 
left Mount Zion, and this is in the southern part of the, of the desert of Sinai, and he returned to his home in Midian, and he approached his father-in-law, Jethro, asking for permission to be able to return to Egypt. And this was a very appropriate thing for Moses to do because Jethro was really kind of the head of the family or the head of the clan. And so Moses is showing appropriate respect here for the leader of his family. But I want you to notice that, that Moses doesn't tell Jethro everything, does he? He makes this request, but he doesn't tell the whole story. He doesn't say anything about the burning bush that wasn't consumed by the flame. He doesn't say anything about the voice of God who spoke with him from the bush and commissioned him to rescue the people of Israel. Instead, he, he simply asks that he would be able to go back to Egypt because he wants to see if his family are still living. He wants to check in with his family. So why didn't Moses tell Jericho, or Jethro, excuse me, about his encounter with the Lord? Commentators offer different kind of suggestions for why he didn't say everything. Uh, some believe that Moses was still struggling with unbelief. Unbelief, that, you know, maybe what God says is going to come to pass isn't going to come to pass, and he didn't want to seem foolish. Others suggest that Moses was afraid that, that Jethro wouldn't believe him. It's one thing to encounter God yourself. It's another thing for people to believe that you have encountered God. More than that, Moses was planning to take his wife and two sons along with him. He didn't want Jethro to be concerned about their safety. Personally, I think it's probably a mixture of those. I think that Moses is still wrestling with his own faith, and he probably doubted that other people would believe him as well if he told them everything. At any rate, he makes his request, and what happens? Jethro doesn't stand in the way. Instead, he blesses him. He blesses him with a traditional Eastern blessing, go in peace. Still from verse 19, it seems that Moses may not have immediately returned to Egypt. It's not clear in the text, but it's possible that he delayed a few days or a few weeks. We're not sure, but we are sure that Moses was still worried about what he would encounter in Egypt. And that's why the Lord comes to him again, now in Midian, and he comforts him. And we're going to focus on that this morning, the way the Lord comforts his servant. How does he comfort him? By informing him that the men who wanted him dead, well, they themselves were now dead. Here God is giving him comfort in his fears. And armed with that knowledge, in verse 20, Moses takes his wife and sons and he departs for Egypt and he carries with him the staff of God, God's staff in his hand, the staff with which he would do mighty, mighty works. You see, this reluctant prophet is beginning to obey. Uh, he's beginning to trust in God. I don't want us to move on, though, without, uh, without thinking about the character of God that we see here, because I do see in the way that God interacts with Moses in Midian just a, a sweet picture of what our God is like. Notice again, Moses is fearful. Uh, he's afraid of the men who had threatened to take his life away 40 years. But what does God do? God does not come to him and rebuke him. God could have very easily come and said, I told you I'd be with you. By the way, I'm bigger than what you're afraid of. What's wrong with you? God doesn't say that. What does God do? He comes and instead he gently encourages his servant. How? By, by allaying his fears. By letting him know that those who wanted him dead, well, they themselves were now dead. And it is true that our God is gentle with us. And our God is gentle with us in our fears, in our anxieties. And we all have them. Uh, we all experience them daily, weekly, over and over in his word. What does our God say to us? He says, do not worry. He says, do not be anxious. He says, I'll be with you. 
So there's a reason not to worry, not be anxious. Why? Because he'll be with us no matter what it is that he calls us to go through in this life. But like Moses, we're often afraid, aren't we? Afraid of our enemies. We're afraid that we won't have enough. We're afraid of kind of dark, shapeless possibilities that we see dimly in the future. We're afraid that we may fail. We're afraid that others may reject us. But isn't it good to know that God does not despise us in our fears? He knows that we're dust. He knows that in and of ourselves we're weak. And here's the thing. He never rejects us. Praise God for that. He never, ever rejects us. Instead, he ministers to us. Just just the way he's ministering to Moses here, he ministers to us as his people, even in our fears. How? By his spirit. His spirit that comes and strengthens us by the promises of his word where over and over and over he makes glorious promises to us so that we have all we need for life and godliness so that we lack nothing of what we need to live for him. I love what Spurgeon said about God's gentleness. He says, how marvelous has been our experience of God's gentleness. How gentle have been his corrections. How gentle his forbearance. How gentle his teachings. How gentle his drawing. In Christ's fellowship, it's right for us to praise God for his gentleness towards us. It's right for us to be grateful that our God is a, a good shepherd who gently cares for his sheep. And he does that even when we struggle to believe. Well, as we continue through our passage, you look at verses 21 to 23, you see that the Lord gave Moses further instructions on what he's to do when he returns to Egypt there. And it's here in this passage in particular that we see the sovereignty of God on display. Look with me, if you will, at verse 21. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. The first thing we see in verse 21 is that the Lord had work for Moses to do. He wanted Moses to to work those miraculous signs that he'd given him, not only for the people of Israel, but also for Pharaoh. So Moses was to take the staff and it would become a snake and his hand would become leprous when he pulled it in and out of his cloak and he was to take water from the Nile and it would become blood, not only before the people of Israel, but also before Pharaoh. Why? Why? Well, I think you see it in the word that he uses to describe these miraculous signs here. He calls them wonders. They're displays of his power. They're the kind of displays of his powers that that draw the gaze so that we're amazed by the power. And God wanted Pharaoh in particular to see his awesome power on display. But notice in the second part of verse 21 that, that Pharaoh would not respond the way to those miraculous signs that the people of Israel would. In chapter 3, verse 18, God had told Moses that the Israelites would listen to him. But here, God tells Moses that Pharaoh would not listen. And this is where we get to God's sovereignty. So look again, if you will, at verse 21. Kind of look in your text there. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Now that, that is a remarkable sentence. You don't just kind of skip over it. If you read it and think about it, it's a a remarkable sentence. God is saying that he's going to, he is going to act in Pharaoh's life in such a way that Pharaoh will refuse to let the Israelites go. Said differently, God is going to do something in Pharaoh's heart 
that will result in Pharaoh, listen, freely choosing to sin. Of course, this won't be the only time in the book of Exodus that we read about Pharaoh having a hard heart. Actually, it's a theme in this book, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, which in many ways is prototypical for the hardness of the heart of all who reject God. It's mentioned more than 20 times in the book. Sometimes Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 15. Other times, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but it doesn't specify who did the hardening. But then there are several passages where it's very clear about who did the hardening. God did the hardening. Our text here, verse 21, it explicitly says that God does the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So what are we to do with this? Well, we need to begin humbly, and we need to begin by admitting that that there's mystery here, Uh, that the interplay between God's sovereignty on one hand and human responsibility on the other hand, that the interplay between those two things is, is difficult. It's difficult because the Bible teaches both, and the Bible never errs. The Bible is the truth of God. So both of these things are taught, but we don't know exactly how they work together. The Scripture very clearly teaches that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Scriptures also very clearly teach that God holds Pharaoh responsible for his sin. And how could this be? If God is sovereign and God hardens Pharaoh's heart, how can Pharaoh possibly be held accountable for his rejection of God. Well, actually, you know, the Apostle Paul points to precisely this tension in Romans chapter 9 when he talks about the issue of election and God's sovereignty displayed in God's election of some, but not others to salvation. So take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. I want you to look with me at verses 14 to 21. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 21, and when you kind of have that, look up at me again. I'll know that we are ready to move on. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 21. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You'll say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. Well, what is formed? Say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? In these verses, Paul is imagining someone who is arguing in this way. He says, if God elects some to salvation and doesn't elect others, how can God hold those he has not elected to salvation responsible for rejecting him. And friends, that's a very good question. It's a very good question. But do you notice what Paul doesn't do here? Paul doesn't throw up his hands and says, you're right, God is unjust. That's not what he says. What does he say? 
He says, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? And here's, here's what you have to understand. If the Bible was ever going to resolve the tension, and there's tension between God's sovereignty on one hand and our human responsibility on the other, it is precisely here that the Bible would resolve that tension, but the Bible leaves it in place. God, in his wisdom, inspired by his Holy Spirit, he leaves the tension in place. Paul leaves the tension in place. We as the people of God, listen, this is important, we have to be content with that tension as well. But is that all we can say? You know, that there's mystery here, then we just throw up our hands. I don't think so. I think we can say a little bit more. So I want to say five things this morning that I hope will be helpful about the interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And, and I do want you to listen here because I think you'll be helped to think about how God God's ways and, and what he's revealed to himself about his sovereignty and how it relates to us. First, the Bible very clearly teaches that God is sovereign over the hearts of men. Just one verse, Proverbs 21, verse 1, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. So whoever deals with this topic Whoever wrestles with this difficult issue has to address the fact that the Bible very clearly says, in more places than one, that in some way, God's ordination of all things includes the freely chosen acts of men and women. And there's mystery there. Second, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, we need to understand that God does not make Pharaoh more sinful. What do I mean? When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he didn't need to add sin to Pharaoh. Uh, that would be actively hardening Pharaoh. That would be making Pharaoh actively more evil than he is. But you see, God never does that. The Bible is very clear that God never tempts people to sin. Instead, to harden Pharaoh's heart, all God needed to do, listen, was remove his restraining grace from Pharaoh's life. You might call this passive hardening. When God's common grace was removed, Pharaoh simply did what he wanted to do. He freely chose to sin against God. In his book, Chosen by God, which I highly recommend, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, he put it this way. He said, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world when Moses went to see him. About the only restraint there was on Pharaoh's wickedness was the holy arm of God. All God had to do to harden Pharaoh further was to remove his arm. The evil inclinations of Pharaoh did the rest. In the act of passive hardening, God makes a decision to remove the restraints. The wicked part of the process is done by Pharaoh himself. Now, I know that's complex. So let me give you an illustration, which I hope will be helpful for you in thinking through this. So I, want you to, I want you to think about a burning candle whose wax has now all melted and has become liquid. Now, to make the liquid wax hard, you don't need to add hardening agents to the wax, do you? Why? Well, you see, because it's the nature of wax to become hard. All you have to do is remove the flame. And when you remove the flame, what happens? The wax does what is its nature to do, and that is to become hard. In the same way, the human heart is deeply sinful. God does not need to add sin 
to harden the human heart. When God hardens someone, all he needs to do is to remove his restraining grace from that person's life. And listen, a grace he is under no obligation to give. And the human heart does what it does naturally. It sins against God just in the way that Pharaoh freely chose to sin against God when God removed his restraining grace from Pharaoh. Third, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is an act of judgment. You see that very clearly in verses 22 to 23. So look at verse 22 and 23. And you will say to Pharaoh, God speaking to Moses, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. Here we see the ultimate reason why God is taking it upon himself to confront Pharaoh. You see, Israel was precious to God. Uh, Israel was in a covenant relationship with God through Abraham. They were God's chosen people. He was going to work to bring them into a specific covenant that they would belong to him in a special way. So to Pharaoh, these Israelites, these Hebrews were just lowly slaves. They were made to be abused and they could be done away with according to his will. But you see, they were precious to God. And what had Pharaoh done to God's son? He had oppressed him and he had enslaved the people of Israel. So God was in an act of judgment going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people of Israel go so that God's judgment would be poured out upon Pharaoh and that judgment would be perfectly just. Pharaoh had enslaved and oppressed God's firstborn son and so God is going to pour out his judgment on Pharaoh up to and including the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn son. You see, When God hardens a person's heart, it is never unjust. It is always a perfectly just act of God's judgment against that person. Number four, this will help you. We will never be able to fully grasp the interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in this life. You see, it's not something that we can know nothing about. I think we've been saying true things about it this morning, but we all have to humbly confess that this is a topic where where we can go this far, but no farther, that there is still mystery here in terms of how all of this works out. You see, we can't say everything. At the end of the day, we can't fully reconcile how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together. It's a mystery. It is above us. Still, God's word teaches both truths, and because it teaches both truths, we joyfully proclaim both truths. This illustration has been helpful for me. When I was two, you could have tried to teach me calculus all day long, and I wouldn't have grasped any of it. I'm not capable as a two-year-old of grasping the kind of the intricacies of calculus. And in this way, there are many things which are true, but because we are finite, limited human beings, we cannot grasp And it is good and right for us to humble ourselves before God and say, you alone are wise. Charles Spurgeon was asked how to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he wisely replied, I never try to reconcile friends. They're both taught. We proclaim them both. Fifth, the the right, the correct response to God's sovereignty is worship. It's worship. 
So many people go wrong here. They, they try to resolve the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but they, but they mess it up. How? Well, they, they overemphasize God's sovereignty and make human beings nothing but a robot. We're just an automaton. We're just, you know, creatures of fate. Well, you know, whatever happens, happens because God's making it happen, and I have no responsibility in my life at all. Or they deny that God is sovereign over men and women's freely chosen acts because now they're exalting the human responsibility side. Both of those are errors. We teach that the Bible teaches God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And see, the right response to God's sovereignty is not fruitless speculation. The right response is worship. The right response is to acknowledge that our God is glorious, that his wisdom is mighty, that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that he's the God of Isaiah 55, 9, and that he's worthy to be worshiped. And I love what Philip Ryken said about this in his commentary. He said, the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. As human beings made in the image of God, we make a real choice to accept or reject God, but even the choice we make is governed by God's sovereign and eternal will. So Christ Fellowship, let's be a people who worship God for his sovereignty, even as we acknowledge that we will not fully understand all of this in this life. Well, looking at verses 18 to 23, we see very clearly that our God is sovereign. In verses 24 to 26, we see a second truth this morning. God disciplines his people. Many people struggle to think rightly about God. In fact, all of us struggle to think rightly about God in different ways. But there are people who profess that all of their sins have been forgiven by God. And they joyfully recite Romans 8 verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet they still find themselves thinking about God as a cosmic judge who is up there in heaven and who is constantly looking down upon them with a look of sadness and disappointment and just waiting, eagerly waiting to punish them when they step out of line. Uh, Brother and sister, I wonder if that's your perspective on God, if you were honest with yourself. Uh, that sometimes you're anxious because you think he's just kind of discouraged by you. That you're a bad deal in some way. Well, friend, if you think like that about God, I want to encourage you this morning to know that that is not how God relates to his people. God is not discouraged with his blood-bought son and daughters. That, That he's not an angry judge. Listen, he is not an angry judge for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to him, for those who are under the blood of Jesus, for those for whom Christ died. God is for us in Christ. We need to believe that. God is for us in Christ. He's ready to bless us. He's eager to do us good. He's anxious for us to come. He's expectant. He wants us to come and to pray and to be with him. Our God is a perfect father. He's a perfect father. But of course, being a perfect father means that you have to discipline your children when they're doing wrong. You have to discipline them because sin is deadly and the Lord does discipline his children. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines us for our good so that, listen, we can share in his holiness. 
We can share in his holiness, which is to say also share in his happiness because God has combined those two realities together. And discipline, listen, discipline is at the heart of what we're seeing in these somewhat puzzling verses, verses 24 to 26. Look at your copy of God's word. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now in verse 24, we read some really shocking words. On the trip at the overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. Now the the Hebrew doesn't specify exactly who the him is, but from the context, it is certain that the him is Moses. Uh, We don't know how the Lord intended to put Moses to death, what the danger that Moses was facing was. Uh, Perhaps he was going to wrestle with the angel of death, or perhaps he became kind of suddenly violent or ill or was seized with a seizure. In some way, he was close to death so that Zipporah, his wife, has to come to his rescue. The Bible's not clear about that. We're not sure. But the deeper question is really why? Why would God confront Moses in this way? After all, hadn't God just commissioned Moses to go to Egypt? Uh, Doesn't it seem that the whole plan for the Exodus really, really depends on Moses making it safely to Egypt? So why is God now seeking to put Moses to death? Well, we get some insight into that question from the response of Zipporah, Moses' wife. Somehow she understood that the root cause of Moses' near-death experience wasn't physical weakness or even satanic opposition. In fact, or instead, it had to do with the fact that one of her sons, probably the younger son, Eliezer, had not been circumcised in accordance with the command of God in Genesis chapter 17. Let me read Genesis 17, verses 9 to 14 for you here. God also said to Abraham, As for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Who is Moses? Moses is a descendant of Abraham. Moses was circumcised, but probably one of his sons, probably Eleazar, had not been circumcised. Well, what's the problem? The problem is that Moses, as a father, is walking in covenantal disobedience with God. And so to save her husband's life, Zipporah took her son, circumcised him, and threw his foreskin at Moses' feet, which is probably what that word touched to many of your translations is ultimately referring to. And when the child was circumcised, well, the crisis was passed. It says, the Lord let Moses alone. In other words, Moses did not die. The crisis passed. He was restored to health. But Zipporah, for her part, it seems that she had been deeply impacted by this experience. She's angry. She calls Moses a a bridegroom of of blood. That's probably not a compliment. It's possible, possible 
that Zipporah even took her two sons at this point and went back to her father Jethro in Midian, that's possible because we actually won't see Zipporah again until Exodus 18 when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, meets him after the Exodus in the wilderness and he brings Zipporah and Moses' sons along with him. What are we to make of this passage? Let me give you one observation. The observation is this. God disciplines his people. We spoke about this earlier, but God is not an angry judge towards his people. God is not just waiting in heaven, hoping we will step out of line so that he can afflict us with a plague. But God is a good father. And as a good father, he is committed to the good of his children. And part of the good of his children is disciplining them when they are in sin. Why? Because sin is deadly. Think about it this way. Uh, If you have children, you know that children are born with an innate desire to touch dangerous things. Things like hot oven stoves and live electric outlets. And the more dangerous it is, the more it seems that they want to go and explore and touch it. And so we warn them not to touch those things. We tell them that those things are dangerous, and yet they'll look at us and and try to figure out if they can still touch it. Why? They don't realize the danger. So what do we do? First, we warn them, and then we'll smack their hand, won't we? And they'll cry, and they'll be stunned, and they'll wonder, "What, what are we doing? Why are we treating them in that way? In short, what do we do? We discipline them. Why do we discipline them? Because we love them, and we don't want them to be hurt. We don't want them to be harmed. In the same way, sin is spiritually deadly, but in our sinfulness, listen, we are still drawn to it. We're drawn to it. That's the reality. The flesh within is still drawn to sin. What does God do? Well, he warns us about the sin in his word, doesn't he? Over and over and over. This is what sin is. Sin will destroy you. Do not play with it. And yet in our lives, we find that we are still amazingly, it seems, pulled towards sin. And what does God do? Well, as a good father, he does what good fathers does. He disciplines us. And that discipline, when it's in our lives, it stings. It might be this kind of restless sense that something is not right between God and my soul. It could be a loss of a relationship if that relationship was pulling us away from God. It it can be an illness or an injury or job loss, which we somehow sense is connected with the ongoing sin in our lives. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the discipline looks like, it stings. It hurts. It's not pleasant. But listen, God's purpose in the discipline is so good. It's so good. Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 11. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our friends, our God does discipline us, but it's always for our good. Just as he disciplines Moses in this passage for Moses is good. And praise God that he is committed to our good. A final truth this morning. God cares for his people. 
God cares for his people. Look at verses 27 to 31. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he'd commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshipped. Now, these verses are pretty straightforward. They don't need a lot of explanation for us to understand what was happening, but they do contain some sweet truths. Moses and Aaron, they meet at Mount Sinai. There, they greet one another. Uh, Moses explains more fully what God has commissioned them to do. And from there, they travel to Egypt. And there, they meet with the elders of Egypt. And they do all the signs that God had given them to perform. And what happens? Uh, Just as God had said, the people of Israel, along with the elders, they believe. They believe God's word. They believed that God had sent Moses to deliver them. More particularly, they believed that God was for them and would rescue them. You see, they understood that God is not kind of the watchmaker God or kind of wound up the the universe and sent it out there and it's just kind of running and he's not involved. And God is not the Muslim God, Allah, who is too transcendent and far and beyond to care at all for his followers. No, Yahweh, the true God, is the personal God who cares for his people and is touched by their suffering. And more than just being concerned for his people, our God is a God who moves to rescue his people and is committed to delivering them. Well, how do the people of Israel respond? Look at the end of verse 31. They knelt low and they worshiped. They knelt low and they worshiped. And that, brothers and sisters, is the right way to respond to a God who rescues us who rescues us. Friend, if you're with us this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Christ for salvation, we want you to know who God is. Uh, God is not the, the tolerant God of this age who just wants people to be happy and to be nice. And God is not the cosmic killjoy in the sky hoping to damn as many people to hell as possible. No, most fundamentally, God is a God of love who desires sinners to be rescued from their sins. God is the God of Israel who's touched by the sufferings of his people and moves to rescue them. And God is the God, listen, who has done all that is necessary to rescue sinners from their sins. And that means, friends, God has done all that is necessary to rescue you from your sins so that you might be restored to him. And the Bible does teach some hard things about what it means to be a human Uh, The Bible teaches that we were created by God to know him and to love him, uh, to walk with him in close, close companionship and fellowship, to serve him and to adore him. But we have all been born sinful and separated from God because our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God in the garden and we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we all have inherited that same sinful nature of rebellion against God. So that what feels most natural to us is not loving God and worshiping him and serving him. Instead, what feels most natural to us is that we would serve ourselves. And we would put ourselves at the very center of our world and try our very best to make ourselves as happy as possible as we can. And we will harm others when they get in our way of our pursuit. We have all sinned against God. We have all broken his commands. None of us can stand before God and say, I am worthy. Why? Because God is holy and we're not holy. 
And as a perfect God, he must judge sin. Listen, because God is good, he must judge sin. And left to ourselves, there would be no way that we could stand before God and he'd say, yes, of course you've done well enough to come into my heaven. No, instead we would all be cast out, out from his presence forever and ever and ever. But this is where we get good news. And the good news is that God is a God who cares for sinners like us. Oh, the God, the Father, sent his Son into the world. The eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus walked among us in this world, what? To live a perfect life. Oh, it's the kind of life we should have lived, but we've all failed to live it. And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and, and to give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice, as a substitute. And so on the cross, Jesus dies, and it was his mission to die. Why? Because our sins had to be paid for. On the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now the free offer of grace this morning for you is that God will rescue you from your sins if you will put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Friend, the Bible does not teach you the way to heaven is to, is to read the Bible and to pray and to give money and to be a nice religious person. That's not it. The Bible says the way to be forgiven for all of your sins is to repent of your sins and to throw yourself wholly on Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice. To put your trust wholly in what Christ has done, to rest in him. And that is our plea and our desire for you this morning, that you would rest in Christ. Oh, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's saying, come to me and you will find rest for your souls at buying more stuff and accumulating more things and achieving more success will never satisfy. And neither will beating yourself up in the vain hope that you can somehow be religious enough for God. Oh, trust in Jesus this morning. Put your hope in Jesus this morning and be saved. It's offered to you freely. Christ fellowship, look at the response of the people of Israel when they saw that God cared for them and was committed to rescuing them. What do they do? They worship. Now think about what God has done for us. Hasn't he committed himself to rescuing us? Hasn't he done that in Christ? Hasn't he paid for all of our sins? Hasn't he adopted us as his sons and daughters? Don't we even now have the hope of heaven before us so that we will live with our God in a perfect world forever and ever and ever? Don't we have reason to worship our God this morning? And friend, what's the, what's the, what's the logical response to a God who has loved us so deeply? The logical response is that we would live for God with all we are and all we have for as long as we live. That's what Romans 12 says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. May God help us be those people. May God help us worship in that way. We'll look in this passage this morning. We've learned three truths that our God is sovereign. Our God disciplines his people and our God cares for his people. Sweet truths. Moses may have been anxious when he took his first step and journeyed back to Midian or from Midian to Egypt, but he didn't need to worry. Why? Because God was with him. And that's one of the sweet things we'll see in this book as we go through it. God will continue to be with Moses all throughout, even though he will soon discover 
that Pharaoh will not make things easy. And we'll see that when we look at Exodus chapter 5, Lord willing, next week. And let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in you as the sovereign God of the universe, the one whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet the God who is eminent, the God who is close, the God who cares for us and has rescued us in Jesus. What glory it is to know you. What what glory it is, Lord Jesus, to worship you as our Savior, as our friend, as our elder brother, as our advocate, as our high priest, as our intercessor, as the one mediator between God and man, as the coming king who will rule over all. How sweet it is to know you. Oh, Holy Spirit, by your power, we pray that you would so fill us with love for Christ, that we would overflow with worship and adoration for our God. And we pray that we would do that each and every day until we see you face to face. And we pray this.